Hello and welcome to another episode of Consumer, the European podcast of the Consumer Choice Center. I'm your host, Bill Words, and uh, it is Billy Joel's pressure fading out in the background for episode 60 on uh, February 10, 2022. I am joined by all of your favorite co-host, Fabio Fernandes. Fabio is actually currently in Brazil. So Fabio, how are you and how's Brazil? Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure and thank you for the introduction. Uh, in Brazil, it's very summer, uh, very hot, nice weather, uh, but inflation really caught up with Brazil. I don't think it's Turkey level. Uh, you can speak more about that. But uh, also last year, I think we had 10% inflation. So prices are rising. And But besides that, wonderful to be with the family. Yeah, I can imagine that with uh, with inflation that does affect of course the local population enormously, but it's good if you if you come in and you have some euros to spend, must be some great shopping going on there. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. But even with the, um, the strong euro comparison to the Brazilian highs, is still uh, some things are still very expensive. So prices are are really going up. Well, talking about expensive things, we have three great topics uh, uh, today. We'll be talking about the phase-out of the internal combustion engines, so that's your regular uh, diesel and uh, uh, petrol-powered cars. There might be a delay coming in there, at least uh, some lawmakers in the European Union are asking for that, and we'll also be chatting about uh, petrol taxes across Europe altogether. We'll also be talking about energy some more, because uh, the Ukraine-Russia crisis has led to an increased demand in gas from Azerbaijan, so we'll be talking about that as well. And this week is the Maastricht Treaty, uh, was it called anniversary or uh, celebrations, like it's been 20 years something, Fabio, right? 30 years, yeah. 30 years, oh my god, it's, it's getting old, it's getting into the, it's getting to its 30s. Um, so, so we'll be chatting about that too. So I'll just say, let's get started. And I think I'll get us started off right away, Fabio, here with them. Um, this conversation on the internal combustion engine. Um, so uh, I think we've talked about this before, either on the podcast in general, or I think I think we talked in the context of uh, electric cars being increasingly subsidized and popularized, uh, sometimes through government means, sometimes through the fact that some of these electric cars are actually great and mean just great products all around. And um, so uh, the initial timeline of the European Union here is 2035. Um, That is supposed to be decided, I believe, this year that this timeline will be laid out. That means in 2035, anything that is petrol or diesel powered will not be allowed to be sold anymore. You can still have your old cars, but you can't buy any new ones. And that actually does include hybrid cars as well, which is interesting because if you look at the data in different European Union member states, you see that hybrid cars are on the rise. People do like them and buy them. Um, So very interesting there. Now, it turns out that in the European People's Party, which is the, the largest party in the European Parliament and also one that controls the most amount of member states' uh, executives, uh, is now voicing criticisms And uh, they say that we should not decide this right now. It should rather be decided in 2028. Uh, And in 2028, we should then lay out the timeline. Now, if that's going to be 2035 in the end for a ban, would be seen. But it seems that there's increasing support for the amendment, also in different uh, groups uh, in the European Parliament. So interesting, uh, the the evolution there. Um, So Fabio, my question uh, is, uh, do you feel like this is this could be sort of a political reaction to the to the high petrol prices Because it is very expensive right now to to fuel up in Europe. Um, Do you think they're chickening out because, uh, well, they're afraid of the political backlash? 
I think so. Uh, one interesting thing also for, I think in the last week, I think it was released uh, an EU auditor on fossil fuels and they found out this is a third party auditor and they found out that fossil fuels uh, get more tax breaks than renewables. So on their study, they said that low carbon prices and low energy taxes on fossil fuels increase the relative cost of greener technologies and delay the energy transition, which is true. If you give uh, tax breaks for fossil fuels, you are postponing or uh, delaying the, the transition to renewables. But the fact is with all the geopolitical uncertainty right now in Europe uh, and uh, prices of energy going up, uh, basically, if you increase or if you tax more fossil fuels, you are also driving more inflation. So it's a very delicate balance that you have to uh, be aware when you're creating those types of legislation, because if you go one way or the other, you're going to sacrifice. And sometimes the, the backlash and the, the, the things that are going to come from those decisions have huge impact on, on consumers. But one interesting thing also from those auditors is that they said, and I quote here, renewable energy subsidies almost quadruple between 2008 and 2019. And most or basically all member countries have increased their uh, renewable energy in the last decade. So if you look at the numbers, you see that member states are investing in renewable energy, but still fossil fuel is cheaper and uh, if you want to push for renewable energies, we need to, to invest more in infrastructure in the way that we will not uh, cause more inflation and unbalances in the market. I think that's true. Also, we sometimes underestimate the, the importance of the way we build cities. You know, the urbanism is very important as to how much people actually need and use their cars. And public transport is a, is a factor in that. But it's also overall how walkable is a city, how accessible is a city. But what you say about um, subsidization, that is, uh, that, that is true. Subsidies are going up because also... Um, a lot of European member states have implemented a specific carbon elements to their fuel taxes in, in recent years. And that money is being used in order to invest into uh, renewable uh, energy sources. Now, electricity overall in Europe is currently very expensive. So whether you're driving an electric car or a petrol-powered car, it does cost a lot more than it usually does. I was recently researching for an article on, 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 on petrol taxes in, in Europe and it is really staggering. I mean, Italy, uh, where where you where you spend most of your time, uh, is is I think the highest taxed uh, per liter in Europe. I think it's some some somewhere around sixty eight cents a liter. That is actually tax, which is a lot, right? I mean, in Italy, it was a euro euro sixty euro sixty five probably for the liter. Um, so so a lot of that is tax, and then the other part. Um, um, is the way that these taxes are organized. So I looked at the specific example of France. In France, it's about 64 cents a litre, that is the, the price. And the way the French tax it is absolutely amazing. Now, you would think that you have your litre of petrol and then you have a certain amount of excise tax and then maybe some VAT, and that does that that explains all the taxes. Now, this is not how the French do it. The French have of developed course. an intricate, complicated, incredible system that is so outrageous. Now, let me explain how this works. So France has an excise tax on petrol that is, uh, the acronym is TICPE. Now, TICPE is applied to the um, to the to the purchasing price of the distributor. Um, so before it's actually sold to the consumer, that's where they apply the tax. Then um, they tax the 
uh, they, they apply TICPE again on the final sale of the product, okay? Where T, the first TICPE is already included. So there's a tax on the, on the purchasing price of the distributor. And then, that, then there's a second tax, the same tax gets applied again to the, to the sale of the product. So that means it's a tax on a tax. Now, VAT is also charged, but VAT is also charged after the excise tax. That means that VAT is, in this case, the tax on the tax that taxes the tax, which is absolutely incredible. And uh, for those of you, uh, uh, for those of you who know the acronym value added tax, now th there is no. What is the value added of it already being double taxed? It, it goes completely against the entire notion of what VAT is about. And this whole system means that every increase in the barrel price will multiply in. On, in multiple fashions, the taxes that are being applied to it, because you have a, you have you have, the, you have these multipliers, because one is VAT, and then two applications of excise tax, which is why each time the barrel increases, the taxes increase multiple fold, which makes the fact that even though the barrel is somewhere was it was like ninety ninety dollars right now in two thousand eight, it was it was it was double that amount. It was about one hundred and eighty dollars if you adjust it for inflation, but. Uh, um, the, the price of petrol is, is actually higher. So price of petrol higher, even though the barrel is cheaper compared to a, a bit more than 10 years ago. So I think that really outrages people. Now, they have, in France, they had to slow down some of the increases in taxation because of the yellow vests. But I think in the long run, they will, they will want more money for renewables and they will continue this ongoing taxation. I think, I don't know what you think, Fabi, but I think this is so outrageous when you actually start understanding the details of it. It is. And when we start thinking about how much more uh, or how cheaper the, the fossil fuel price could be if those excise taxes were not included or imposed on consumers, you see that how uh, you understand why inflation is going up everywhere. So as you said, every increase, one dollar increase on the barrel means a lot more for consumers at the end. So. Uh, and, and the problem with electric vehicles, I don't want to go too much off topic here, but it's also uh, the price of nickel, cobalt, and especially lithium that has also increased. So when you talk about electric vehicles, one important component is the battery. And uh, also the price of electric vehicles is very high because those uh, products that you use to to create the batteries on the car, uh, they are increasing in very, being very expensive because they are hard to mine, they are hard to come by, and there is a lot of uh, demand for that. Not only because we have electric vehicles, but everything now is electronic. So you have cell phones, everything uses some kind of electric component. So I think this is two things that go together so, uh, and justify why the, the prices are so high. And the European Union should think more about that. So I particularly think that uh, taking more time to decide and make those arrangements uh, is the wise way to go, especially because of the, the current scenario, international scenario. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's so many factors to include here. And, and, and as to your question uh, that people might ask, what would a liter of petrol actually cost if, it, if there were no taxes on it. Now, the numbers, of course, vary between individual member states because you have different agreements for distributors. But the rough number is about 50 cents a liter, uh, 50 euro cents a liter. And then we're much closer to what the Americans actually pay for their for their petrol. I think that's that's incredible. And of, of course, some consumers might instinctively have the 
um, like they see the petrol prices and they think, oh, now these like distributors, like the petrol station will make a lot of money on it. But actually, even in France, where it's, where it's comparatively larger margins, is only between one and two cents, which means that it's less than 3% of the actual liter of petrol is the margin for the distributor. And the audacity, I heard the French Minister of, uh, of the Environment, she went out and she blamed the distributors for the high petrol prices, which is incredible because most of the petrol is actually tax. Um, so, so, so crazy how politics reacts to that. But we'll have to get to the next topic, Fabio. And this is where I wanted to get you in because uh, you suggested this topic, and rightfully so, because we are marking, as you corrected me earlier, the 30th anniversary of the Maastricht Treaty. Um, I think b- b- to do that, we'll have to actually give people idea, a bit of an idea of what the Maastricht Treaty actually did. So maybe you have some, you have some, some focus and some background on, uh, on this 30th anniversary and what it did for consumers. Yes, so basically the EU turns 30 years old. The Treaty of Martridge is the one that founded or formally created the European Union as we know today. And it was created or signed on February 7th of 1992. And it was signed by initially by 12 countries in the Dutch city of Maastricht. That's why it gets that name. And I'm sorry for the pronunciation, but you have much better pronunciation of, in the, of the Ooh, name Dutch of the people city. would correct me on that as well, but uh, just, just carry on. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a result of several years of this of discussions between governments and it ended up with three basic pillars and uh, I think I want to go through those three pillars because those are how they affect us today the first one is European citizenship so created this notion of the European citizenship then a common foreign and security policy so making our borders stronger outside the European Union and a cooperation in the field of justice and home affairs. And uh, the treaty also paved the way to the creation of the single European currency, so the euro. And he also established the European Committee and the Committee of the Regions, the Assembly, the regional and local representatives that are coming from all European uh, countries. Uh, And today the European Union has 440 million citizens and 27 countries. So it, it the enlargement process in the past 30 years, you can see from 12 to 27, 27 countries, it really uh, played a key whole, uh, role here. And um, I think one of the good things, so now we can talk a little bit about what the things that after 30 years, I think there are good and the things that uh, we still need to improve in terms of how the, the union uh, works. And I would love to hear your input on that. So the first one, I think, is the economic and monetary union. So uh, in my view, the common currency uh, is a very strong point of the European Union. I know there is a lot of downsides, but I think during 2007, 2008 and 2009, during the crisis, the euro uh, really showed a very str- to be a very strong um, a very strong part of the European Union uh, because a lot of countries outside the European Union really suffered with the crisis. The United States really suffered with the crisis and the fact that we had a common currency and the fact that we had the Union really helped uh, to make things easier on the, the member states. Uh, of course, Spain, Italy, Greece, they really suffered but they had the back of the European Union to go through that process. Uh, a lot. Uh, another thing that I think is very important is the liberalization of capital movements. And we talk about 
that on the Consumer Choice Center, how you can go to other member state, open a bank account, you can uh, work in different regions, make money there, then transfer the money. I think the liberalization of capital movements was a huge thing of the, that treaty. Also, the uh, convergence of national economic policies. So you could not have this uh, centralized currency if you don't have all national, uh, uh, in the national level, uh, the same policy or the same economic policy and goals so you can all work together to achieve those goals and of course uh, the creation of the european central bank which oversees everything and regulate everything and keeps the whole system working uh, also another thing that if, i don't know uh, what do you think about those uh the monetary union i mean your your your, your description is very charitable uh, and all in your in your honor there in favor in, in favor of some of these creations. I, I would be a bit more skeptical, and, and I, I know that on the podcast I had Peter Klepper on recently, who gave a bit of a, a different view on um, on the euro. Of course, one of the big problems of the euros to me is that um, um, we've ultimately had to adapt to the to the economic performance of, of Germany, and uh, that is sort of the, the guiding factor in how we, we 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 operate on the euro there. And to some countries, this has been a, a huge problem because it's an anticipation of economic performance that they can't quite uh, uh, go with. And uh, Greece has been an incredible example of of how of how that can go wrong. As for the bailouts, I think the bailouts the bailouts also were were. They became necessary because of the euro, and we've had to put up with enormous guarantees for countries that didn't do the necessary changes. And that kind of comes back to the convergence criteria, which is also known as the, the Maastricht criteria. I would be very in favor of the Maastricht criteria, and, and I am, but I also know that they are not really applied. I think there's only like three countries left in the eurozone that actually apply the Maastricht criteria, and Luxembourg <laughs> is one of them. Because um, our debt to GDP is about like maybe thirty percent right right now, um, but most countries in the European Union aren't. Uh, I know that at the at the early stages of the Maastricht Treaty, countries still used to be punished for breaking the convergence criteria. I think Portugal actually paid a very massive fine for breaking the convergence criteria. But by today, there's almost no country left, and including the country that argued for the punishment of Portugal, Germany, it does not respect the Maastricht criteria anymore. Um, so if it's a guidance measure, then it doesn't do much guiding. And if it's a, if if it's if it's a mandatory measure, then it's uh, doesn't seem to be very much enforced. Like it's not like we are kicking countries out of the eurozone if they don't respect the criteria. Now, you could you could argue, and that would be true, that the convergence criteria were originally designed to be this is what you need to respect when you enter, but. Um, if, if the moment you enter is the last time you respected those criteria, then I then, then I don't think they're very consistent. And they don't give much um, they don't give much comfort to investors uh, around the world that countries can just do whatever. And 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 the way that Peter explained it in the podcast episode the interview that we did is that it is sort of incentivizing countries not to reform because as a country you're not allowed to fail. Now what you can do is you know some countries have done this. Uh, Bulgaria, for instance, has pegged its currency to the euro, and that's that's one thing you can do, and that does work for certain countries. But I just don't see that the necessary reforms are being made, and then when a crisis happens. What happened last time around is that we have to get these 
troika type institutions together that go to greece and go like oh these are the reforms that you need to do and of course people hate that because it has nothing to do with the democratic process so of course then they're very upset it 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 works great if you sort of in, in northern Italy, in Germany, Luxembourg and so on. But I just don't see it working for the rest of Europe. Yeah, I agree with you. I think there are a lot of uh, things that we need to improve uh, in the way that it works today. I think the rules need to be enforced. Uh, but if you imagine, for example, Italy that has 130% going up uh, GDP and debit relation, uh, you see that Italy now would be completely in the wrong or completely uh, going the wrong direction in terms of economy if it didn't have the European Union. And that would be terrible not only for Europe, but also for the European Union, because Italy is the third biggest uh, country in, in the Union. So I think the, the strong point of the economic and monetary union and also the euro is, is that, is that you have one country backing the other in worst case scenarios, but also when things go in, a, in the right direction, you have prosperity and stuff like that, all countries share the benefit of the prosperity. But also if you don't have countries that follow the rule and you uh, are exempt and you don't have any punishment if you don't follow the rule. Uh, you have countries that are overperforming and countries that are underperforming, and those overperforming are paying for the underperforming countries. So yeah, we need, of course, to to uh, make it better. But uh, if you go back to 1992 and you see the world as it is today in 2022, you can you you can imagine with the integration that we have now with the globalization, uh, each country of the European Union being independent and not working closely together. Uh, I don't see how we would achieve the prosperity that we have today in the Union if it wasn't for the, the treaty uh, in 92. I mean, it's fair enough. I, I think a lot of the benefits come out of the initial uh, treaty, treaty of Rome in '57. I think that that created, to me, a lot of the baseline for for what we for what we needed. And I'm not entirely convinced that Maastricht in '92 was was entirely necessary. What you say is is correct in, about the enforcement. Um, when we look at the example of Germany, which is a federal star level, and they have something in German called because they have very long German names, they have the called the Länderfinanzausgleich, which means the sort of the um, um, uh, it, those those federal states in Germany that underperform economically get help from all the others. Uh, now, uh, in north of Germany, you have some 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 federal states, some lender uh, that are doing quite poorly, and they have been uh, structurally. And then, of course, there was a question for a long time. Of course, East Germany has similar problems because of its uh, communist past. Um, but uh, what, what is also true in Germany is that the, sort of this rigor is applied that they will only get the minimum of support if they already get these uh, uh, deficit uh, uh, helps. Um, and that we don't apply in the European Union. And then when, whenever there's a new budget discussion, we have the, all the leaders, we have the Italian prime minister that comes into the European Council and says, well, we need as much help as possible in this crisis. And nobody says, oh, but you've already received so much that there is no real justification for us to help you even more. But because it's a representative of a country and we try and hold the whole thing together, that's why we don't apply this rigor. So in principle, the system works 
if people have sort of common goals as to improve their situation and not try and you know rent seek you know live off of each other and that I think is is why I'm a bit bit more critical towards this. But uh, good good con good 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 discussion there. Uh, but I gotta I gotta I gotta help transition us to the next topic uh, so that we stay within the time limit. Um, we um, I, I mentioned this already last week that the conflict uh, between between Russia and Ukraine actually will have effects for economically for Europe as well. And I mean, there's a whole military aspect to it that we're not going to get into now. But one of the effects I described there was about food prices that will be affected. Now, overall, food imports from, from, from Ukraine are only about 5%. But then in certain areas, I think fertilizers was one of them, um, it, it quickly goes up to 80, 90%. So, so this, is, this has, an, has an impact. Another impact then is energy. And we already talked about energy now, but this is sort of about household uh, heating and so on, uh, is gas. And uh, of course, if we put sanctions on Russia, Russia might re- react and has suggested to do so, cutting off gas. Alternatives to Europe are a bit scarce in the way that uh, uh, Norway is, is a provider, but not a very big provider uh, um, um, of, of energy. Uh, Azerbaijan is another. And I, I've read uh, news articles um, that say that Europe is trying to up its game when it comes to Azerbaijan. Long an energy powerhouse plans to become a major provider of Europe's energy security needs. It will do so through what's called the European Southern Gas Corridor. It's a series of mega projects that will bring Azerbaijani natural gas from the Caspian Sea to the heart of Europe for the first time. And it will cost $45 billion. It's very important for Europe community, the European gas market, as uh, we are trying to diversify their source of, uh, source of the gas. So Southern Gas Corridor, and namely Azerbaijan gas, is one of the newest uh, additional source of gas for European buyers. I'm here at Sokara, which is Azerbaijan's state-owned energy company and one of the largest foreign investors in Turkey. As senior corporate executives tell us how energy cooperation between Turkey and Azerbaijan will prove so crucial for European energy security. Turkey and Azerbaijan are working together to construct the European Southern Gas Corridor, which is scheduled to become fully operational by the year 2020. And that corridor is supposed to then be used to up uh, the the imports from Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan, unfortunately, also quite a dictatorship and not necessarily the most reliable partner that we want to be dependent on. But unfortunately, our our means are limited as to choosing the countries that have the gas. Germany has made itself very dependent on on russian gas uh, germany's specific example on this now with the with the creation of the of the north stream 2 pipeline and i think that's probably also why germany's very hesitant to make strong commitments on uh, on the russia ukraine conflict because they are afraid that russian gas might get cut off and that might have serious uh, both political and, and economic repercussions for the country um, it seems that we're a bit of a conundrum here, and it seems that only France is trying to address this by building more nuclear power plants. I mean, the Netherlands is also trying to do that now, building one. Uh, but but it seems to it seems to be uh, we're kind of stuck here. And uh, I was wondering what you think, Fabio. Uh, um, what I mean, what is the what is the short term solution here for consumers? Yeah, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. I think the. By the end of last year, we talked about how we were super dependent on Russia and all this Ukrainian 
uh, invasion was not even in the in the news yet, uh, and we were worried about consumers in Europe and being so dependent and high prices of energy. We discussed that. Uh, I've been following the news and following some analysts talking about a possible Russian invasion of Ukraine. And what people say regarding uh, energy is then a completely cut off of uh, Russia's gas to Europe uh, would be unthinkable. And that is because Europe is Russia's biggest commercial partner, followed by China. And I think China imports, I think, half of what Europe's import in terms of uh, gas and energy. So uh, cutting completely the the pipeline and not providing Europe with gas would be also uh, very damaging to uh, Russian's economy. So they wouldn't do that. The most likely scenario, what I understand, is probably cutting the pipelines that go through uh, Ukraine. So probably Nord Stream we would save and it will continue flowing gas to um, uh, Germany. Uh, but going to Azerbaijan is a good way to uh, provide Europe with the additional gas it needs, especially during the winter. Uh, it's not, as you said, an excellent solution because it's a dictatorial country. Uh, it's not a democracy. It's not the best of partners that Europe could have. Uh, but in the region and using the pipelines that are already in place and Europe doesn't have to invest in new pipelines and create or source their gas from different places, uh, that would be a solution, a viable solution that would keep prices low and would provide with the additional gas that uh, Europe needs in case Russia starts uh, turning the, the pipeline off, especially the ones that crosses Ukraine. Uh, but as you said, if Prices uh, continue to go up because uh, demand in Europe, especially during the winter, is very high. And the offering of gas, uh, especially from Russia, is cut off. Uh, we're going to have higher gas prices, higher price of goods, uh, higher energy costs, uh, overall higher inflation. So it's not a good scenario. So Europe is, is really in has a conundrum here. They need to decide what is the next move. And maybe that will push for the renewables that we were talking in the beginning of the podcast. Maybe that's the leap that Europe needs maybe to invest more in nuclear energy, as we said in the past. Uh, now, probably it's going to be included in the te taxonomy. We talked about that in another episode of the podcast. So, yeah, we have to watch and see how, how things go. But uh, I don't think we're going to be completely uh, without Russian gas, uh, even if an invasion uh, do occur. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it kind of reminds me of this meme. Well, 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 if it isn't uh, a problem of my own creation, uh, if you look at the new construction in Europe, um, nobody's really incentivized to create electric heating. Um, that's that's not really a thing. I think it's only really in France where where electric heating is really integrated into into the building process. If you have an old home, many countries have already banned you now to use your chimney uh, to heat uh, with with firewood. And uh, this we're also seeing the phase out of petrol uh, based heating. So we've cut ourselves out of all of our solutions. We're relying heavily on natural gas. And, uh, and and I think we, we also have sort of a responsibility there in, in our own problems because it is really hard to grandstand towards Russia um, politically when simultaneously you're very dependent during the winter on its uh, on on its on its gas uh, exports. I think another part in that is also the 
uh, how much um, how much stock of, of of gas do we like? How much uh, do we keep? Uh, on the side, how many, you know, how full are the stock tanks of gas? Because that is something that we, when we looked at the prices, I think we also talked about this in one of the episodes, when we looked at the prices, we saw that in 2020, it was so expensive to store gas in Europe because the, the price was so low. And so the, the you know, the gas tanks were, were, were full. And then, uh, and, 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 and basically during the summer, especially if there's, there's very little need. But increasing those capacities is actually a good way of getting through a short-term crisis. Uh, having more gas storage is also part uh, of, of sort of giving yourself a bit more breathing time in order to get through a crisis. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, is, it is a really complicated story there, and, 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 and it really infects inflation, affects inflation. Um, you know, because it, it, it's not just about the individual heating for consumers. It's also the fact that you, the, the way your products are produced or the way that you get your services uh, is also affected by, by gas prices. And, you know, if your, bank, uh, if your bank needs to pay more for, to heat the building, well, then they might also increase your fees, right? And that also has an effect on, on how much you pay for your goods and services. So all of this goes together and, 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 it, and it's really complicated. Um, and, you know, ideally, you don't want the economic situation to affect your politics. You know, I, I we don't need to discuss here what we think about um, what the best way forward is to, you know, ideally avoid a war, but also simultaneously show Russia that uh, certain things are not are not acceptable for Europe. Um, but um, you would ideally want to do it from a position of independence in a way that you can that your 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 judgment is not clouded by dependence of a certain uh, energy product, right? Anyway, I think yeah. In uh, every negotiation, if you're if you're negotiating from a position of strength, it's much better. You have much better deals. But now Europe is not strong enough. Doesn't have the cards on its side to to play with uh, Putin in, the, in this scenario. So, yep, we we have our hands tied here. So actually, I'm I'm curious. How does Brazil get its energy? Like, how do people heat their homes uh, in in Brazil? And what are sort of the electricity sources as well? So uh, heating is not a problem here because uh, the climate it's very mild during the during the winter. Uh, so the biggest problem here is energy for air conditioning during the summer. So Brazil has uh, nuclear energy facilities, uh, but that uh, also increases the price of the energy because it's a little bit more expensive. They don't keep the nuclear uh, factories running all the time. They turn it on and off depending on how it goes. That's because we are mainly uh, dependent on hydro. And the past, I don't know, decade, uh, it, it has not been raining as it was in the past. So many facilities have been also very low in the water level. And that has compromised also the source of hydro for, for energy. And that's why we've been using the thermal and also the uh, nuclear energy facilities. Uh, but usually during the summer, so it's the opposite of Europe. So during the summer is when we have our peak mainly because of air conditioning to cool off the houses and apartments. 
but during the winter we don't have the the problem that Europe has of gas to to heat the, the house. Oh, maybe you should uh, maybe Brazil should get some uh, some advice from Europe there because air conditioning doesn't really exist in Europe no matter how hot it gets during the summer. So eventually you got to develop those resistance or build like the Romans. Huh? The Romans apparently they used to build their houses in a way that it would sort of like do this natural cooling. You would have these mini pools in your in your home to to it's probably bad for the mold but uh, but but anyway it, it, apparently it did cool down down the places it seems that people will have to get inventive who would have thought right i mean we thought we do it we were in the modern digital uh, era and we were thinking about ai how to use the virtual ai services but apparently we're still thinking about how to heat our homes or cool them down for that matter it is uh, it is quite incredible. But in any way, Fabio, uh, thank you so much for joining me today on the on the consumer podcast as uh, as your co-host. Uh, please, uh, dear listeners, if you like this podcast, please give it a a, a like or five stars or uh, whatever you're currently using. I don't know exactly which platforms have what. And of course, we're also available on podcasting 2.0. So you can make a donation in crypto if you would like every a uh, little donation is much appreciated for our work. And uh, yeah, Fabio, any any uh, any concluding words? Uh, no, thank you for having me. And for the listeners, if you want to support the channel and support the, the podcast, please use the new podcasting 2.0. It's an amazing, great tool to donate Satoshis, which are very inexpensive and really help support the podcast. This week, I've been one half of your host, Bill Words. And uh, yeah, see you Thursday. You have to learn to pace yourself. Pressure. You just like everybody